It's a lot of little people. There they go, all the little people. Speaking of little people, one thing we do as parents, grandparents, as a culture, even big brothers and sisters, is, is we work very hard at protecting children. We do it as a culture, we do it as individuals, uh, we see children as worthy of protecting, we realize that there are outside sources that could be harmful to them and they're, they're real threats, and so we work hard. Uh, we do everything from holding uh, hands across parking lots to uh, making sure that children eat the right foods and, you know, all the different food groups and not too much from the Butterfinger group, and, you know, we take them to the doctor and they get their immunizations, and, and we, we work very hard to keep our children safe. In fact, it's not just in a physical level. We also work hard even uh, on a moral level. We, we work hard at watch, uh, what they watch on television and protecting them there, protecting them from what we've come to know as Internet predators. Uh, it's also on a spiritual level for those of us who are Christians. Uh, we realize that these children are vulnerable and they're impressionable, so we want to teach them God's Word. We want to pray with them. We want to pray for them. We work hard at protecting children and rightfully so. Today we're not going to talk about that, though we certainly could. We're not going to talk about children at all, really. But it does serve the point, it does make the point as an illustration that when there is a real threat and when something is important to us, we work hard at protecting that something or someone. Today we're going to talk about our need as Christians, my need as a pastor, your need as a Christian or a pastor if you are one, our need to work hard, just as we would be sort of fanatical, if you will, about protecting children, and I'm fanatical with my children about that, most of you are too if you're parents, we need to, to work hard at and excel in the area of protecting God's truth, protecting the gospel protecting the truth about Jesus Christ. It is a biblical mandate, as we will see, and it's something that we want to work hard at doing as Christians. Much like children, we want to work hard at it because we love God and therefore we love His truth, as the psalmist would indicate. Much like children, there are many dangers that threaten the gospel, and much like children, the truth of the gospel and God's Word is a gift from God, and so we want to be good stewards with that gift. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, why are we doing this today? Well, pragmatically speaking, it's because we're done with Matthew. But that's not a very profound answer. Uh, we finished our study of the gospel according to Matthew last week. Lord willing, next week we'll start Romans with an introduction, pretty much ready to go with that. But during these break times, I just wanted to take one Sunday, for whatever reason, I feel burdened as a pastor, to say, let's remind ourselves that we're not only about promoting the truth, but we also must be, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, and this is after all His church, He bought it with His blood, we need to be faithful at protecting the truth and the truth of the gospel. Perhaps what's fueling that a little bit is the fact that we just got done with Matthew and it, and it, was, uh, it ends on such a great positive high point about how great Christ is and He's the universal sovereign, He's the King of kings and Lord of lords and we're to take His message everywhere. It couldn't be more positive and glorious about the King that Christ is. And so we're positive. But sometimes we forget that with our being positive about Christ and how great He is and what a majestic Savior He is, that we forget that logically 
and biblically, more importantly so, with that exalting of Christ comes also a defending of the truth about Christ. Because if you're truly for something, you naturally, as a result of that, are against all other things that might oppose that something. In this case, it's someone that's talking about Christ. And so I feel the pastoral burden. Perhaps it's more for my own heart than anyone else's, but hopefully it's not just for, for me. To aid us in this quest, to make sure we're not only promoting, we're also defending, First Timothy chapter 6 is the text I'd like you to turn to. And the last two verses is, uh, are the verses we will look at this morning. But before we actually read those verses, and we will in just a moment, let me give you what I think is a helpful outline. And in these three verse, or two verses, we can find three indispensable resources. Three indispensable resources that will help us to protect or guard this sacred trust we know as the gospel. Three resources that help us to guard the sacred trust of the gospel. Number one, number one, a definitive command. A definitive command. Just write down command, kids, if your parents are making you take notes. You don't have to write down definitive unless you want to. That's extra credit, okay? It's a command, but chapter 6, verse 20. The second indispensable resource is a disturbing illustration, a disturbing illustration found in verse 21. And the third indispensable resource when it comes to guarding the sacred trust of God's gospel, number three, a divine empowerment, a divine empowerment. And we'll go... 90% on number one of our time and 5% on number two and 5% on number three. If you would, just look at those verses with me and, and let's read them. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Now what I did last night, because I wanted to fall asleep to it, because I wanted it to be the last thing in my mind, and it didn't put me to sleep, don't misunderstand. (laughs) As I read 1 Timothy 1-6, to and that really provides the great platform for reading this, so we can really feel the weight of this whole thing, but we're not going to take the time to do that right now. But really... It's almost what's necessary. He tells them all the things that he tells them. And let me tell you right now, by way of summary, he tells them all about, once again, how great Christ is and how we are saved indeed only based only upon the merits of Christ, the perfect work of Christ, that the gospel is central to everything, that Jesus Christ lived and died a, a sinner's death and then rose again from the dead. And it's all about him, everything to do with him. And then... Woven in between exalting Christ throughout the letter, one of the things he does is he talks about those who oppose this message. Maybe by saying it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus some other teaching. Jesus plus some other experience. Jesus plus some other authority. It's a great book that exalts Christ, but it does so in the context of conflict. And so he calls him at the very end to guard, 
Guard this gospel. Guard it because it is the hope that we have. Guard it because it is the power of God unto salvation. Guard it because it is what gives Christ the glory that He so rightfully deserves. And so I'm hoping that that I can stir you up a bit in talking about this. Before we get to that first vital point, I just want to say something about interpreting the Bible and applying the Bible. I know full well that this is a pastoral letter. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Timothy is a young pastor. He's aiming at a young pastor teaching them these things. So it's applicable to me because I'm a pastor. The young part is now debatable. I used to say I was a young pastor. I'm getting to be an older pastor. But some of you are older pastors than me. Some of you also are pastors, and so we're finding a little bit more direct impact in the text. We love to read the pastoral letters because it reminds us of these sorts of things. And I'm big on saying, let's make sure we don't quickly apply the Bible to everyone and anyone in every situation because then you end up kind of taking the weightiness of it away. But I don't think we're violating any principles of interpretation or application when we look at this text and say, yes, it's a pastoral letter written to Timothy. Yes, therefore, it's applicable to all Timothys who've come after him. But Timothy is the pastor of a church. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 15, you see that that church is also called to be the pillar that is the positive promoter of the truth and also the support, the defensive defender of the truth. I'm not called, Timothy's not called to do anything that you're not called to do when it comes to this matter of ministry that is positive and ministry that is negative, meaning we're defending the gospel and its purity. And as I do ministry as a pastor, and there are other leaders and pastors here, we do ministry together. We don't do ministry alone. We do ministry together as a local church, and we go arm in arm to promote the gospel. Therefore, we must go arm in arm when it comes to defending the gospel. Or we're not doing our part. We're not doing what we're supposed to do. So I hope that helps you. As I'm preaching, sometimes I'll just be talking about Timothy. I'll be talking about pastors. Sometimes I'll be talking about us as Omaha Bible Church. In one way or another, there is significant and vital application for us as a local church. And for you as a pastor, if you are one. And for me, certainly. Let's go ahead and look at this definitive command when it comes to protecting, defending. He sets the mood with this endearing statement in verse 1, or excuse me, in verse 20, where it says, Oh, Timothy, he writes. Now, we don't know for certain if that was just all about the fact that this is not a business letter because he's writing to his true child in the faith, as he calls him. So it's filled with emotion. He loves Timothy as a child. He loves Timothy as a mentor. They have a personal, close relationship. And so he, he's, he's, he's giving that flavor here. Oh, Timothy, I love you. And I want the best for you. And this is the best for you as a pastor and as a brother in Christ. Or it could carry the flavor of more the exhortation feel. Oh, Timothy, this is not a time for sleeping. This is not a time for getting drowsy on the job. Timothy, this is not a time for playing games. Oh, Timothy, you listen to this. This is vital. And I would want to echo those same kinds of emotions and feelings to you. We're in this together. I'd say, oh, believers, 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is good for us. We do this together. But I would also want to say, Oh, believers! Wake up! This is not a time to be drowsy. This is not a time to think everything's great. Everyone who names the name of Jesus is on our team. You don't get that flavor when you read this letter. Oh, Omaha Bible Church! Pay attention! I don't see why we need to make a decision on which emotion is to be felt there. I think we can see both of them. Both of them certainly would have been true for Paul when he related to Timothy. So, my name's not Timothy. I'm not certainly this Timothy. Some of you may not be named, you may be named Timothy, but you're not this Timothy. But I stand in a long line of Timothys. And certainly it applies to all of us as we lock arms in ministry together. Then the actual command comes in verse 20. Oh, Timothy, he says, guard. There's the command. Guard what has been entrusted to you. If you want to be technical, it's a present middle imperative. It is a command. This is not an option. This is not one good idea amongst many. Timothy, you are a pastor. Timothy, therefore, you guard. Therefore, Timothy, you, in light of the context, Timothy, you guard and you keep guarding. Timothy, you are an MP for the truth. He's using a military term. You stand there and you don't flinch. I don't care how tired you get. I don't care how weary you become. I don't care what kind of thing comes along the way. I don't care what kind of distractions. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the truth of Jesus Christ, Timothy, that saved you, that saved me. I gave you my testimony in chapter 1 just to remind you of what a wretch I was. And by the grace of God, he saved me. This is the most powerful force imaginable. So when we're talking about that kind of power, we're talking about the gospel. Timothy, you'd better not even blink. You'd better not even flinch. And right away we can see application. As a pastor in a long line of Timothys, I have a responsibility, uh, yes, to promote, but yes, to defend. You have a responsibility. We have a responsibility as a church to gloriously and passionately and positively speak of the greatness of Christ. And in the present tense mode, with imperatival force, we have a requirement from God to not blink, to not flinch. We're talking about the truth of the gospel. It has the power of God unto salvation. The truth about Jesus Christ who has all authority. We need to assume the at-attention poise when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to defending it. This assumes, it assumes that there's something of great value. I mean, if you, if you, you, you should just be there no matter what, no matter, no matter how tired you get, no matter what distractions come, you're going to be there and you're going to guard and keep guarding. That assumes there's something very valuable. We know it's very valuable. It transforms people's lives. It moves them from children of Satan to children of God. It's very valuable. It's the most valuable treasure of all. This also assumes the reality of opposition, does it not? Why would you need a military if there was never going to be any conflict? He wouldn't use this term. If everything's all fine and hunky-dory, whatever that means, I don't even know. You know, everything's just all going to be fine because, you know, everybody talks about Jesus, loves Jesus, and, you know, uh, this would be a ridiculous command. 
And it would be ridiculous for me to get up here and perspire and shout and say, Omaha Bible Church, or if you're a pastor, pastor, you must guard and keep guarding. That would be stupid. But there is opposition. The first six chapters of the book have laid that out for us. Guard and keep guarding. We have a responsibility as a local church to guard and keep guarding and to not flinch in our guardianship. This also assumes a lot from the one guarding. You could just write down things. If you're going to guard, let me ask you, if you're going to guard something and not flinch and you're just going to stay on task in guarding something, what kind of things does that assume of you? It assumes that you're going to have a certain gut-level conviction about the importance of what you're guarding. This assumes you're going to have the ability to be bold. This assumes you're going to have the ability to, to even face conflict. This assumes, I'll give you my list, it assumes alertness, it assumes fearlessness, it assumes strength, it assume, assumes stamina, drive, endurance, perseverance. And on the negative side, it assumes that you've got it figured out that being a pastor is not merely smiling a lot and making people feel good about themselves. Being a pastor is not merely being some sort of politician. Being a pastor, for me, at gut level, I have to realize I have not been called by God to be somebody's psychologist. It's not my calling in life. My calling in life is not to be a motivational speaker. My calling in life is not to be a CEO who runs corporate America church. My calling in life is to, yes, preach the word, 2 Timothy, with authority, my calling in life is to defend the truth, to defend the word, the gospel, and I need to do so unflinchingly. And I'm hoping and praying that that's how you see me as a pastor and you see other pastors and you require that of them. As one of my friends used to say, you need to find a, the sign on the office of the pastor that says office and tear it down and put study up there. He's not Mr. Corporate Big Shot. Who does he think he is? Pastor, you need to get in that office and we're going to lock you in there and you need to plant your south side in the chair and open the book and keep your nose in the book until the work's done so you have something to say to us. I like that. You should require that. But it also puts a burden on you. It puts a burden on us as a church. We want to be so in love with Christ and we want to see the power of the cross as so powerful and so significant there's nothing like it on earth and therefore we will, we will boast of it from the housetops. And we also will go to the wall for it to keep it intact in its purity because the stakes are high. What we don't want to think of ourselves as soft-spoken religious professionals God forbid that somehow we would see pastors as religious professionals. God forbid that we would ever see ourselves as a church as some sort of religious club. It's about the truth. It's about the cross. It's about the gospel. Guardianship that we share. Well, then let's keep reading the object of our protection. What, did it, what is it that we're supposed to protect? Well, I've already been you know, bleeding it all over the place, and it's pretty obvious. But if you keep reading in verse 20, after he says guard, he says, what has been entrusted to you? What, what are we supposed to guard? Well, we're supposed to guard what's been entrusted to you. Literally, you could translate that. We're to guard the deposit. 
the deposit, something valuable like money, a large sum of money, or jewels, or gold. He's using this term from the ancient world. You're, you're to guard what is very, very valuable. The deposit. I mean, the image that comes over in our culture, which is different, are the armed guards. You know, they show up packing heat, and they show up at the place, place of business, and the guy's carrying the money out. He's guarding the deposit. The business makes a deposit at night, and here come the armed guards. And you don't mess with those guys in an armored car. It's not a bad analogy. Guarding the deposit. What do we guard? We guard something much more valuable. We guard the truth about Christ. Like armed guards we do. As we're promoting it, we're also defending it. Well, maybe if we need to flesh this out a little bit more, and I think we do, as far as he's... Guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard the deposit. Well, what exactly is that? Let's look at it from a couple of different angles. If you would look at verse 20 and 21 together, we can interpret it together rather clearly. Okay, guard what has been entrusted to you. Well, I drew a line from that down to the end of verse 21 in that little statement, the faith. He's talking about the faith. He's talking about that objective body of Christian doctrine, which is a synonym for the gospel. Read it together and you'll see. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Hmm, what is that? Avoiding worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, they've professed the falsely called knowledge, and thus gone astray from what? The faith. What we guard, what has been entrusted to us, is the faith. And what does he call it? The faith. It's not just faith. It's not just faith in faith. It's objective. That's why theologians have referred to it as, as the objective body of Christian doctrine. It's not something inside of us. It's not a feeling, which is what we typically think of. We think of like we do Star Wars Christianity when we talk about faith. It's faith in faith. It's some mysterious force. May the force be with you. May the faith be with you. Keep the faith. That's kind of how we think, unfortunately. When we're talking about Christianity. We're talking about the faith with the article. That which exists outside of you, whether you believe it or not. And we as Christians, we do believe it. We embrace it. What is it that we're to guard? What has been entrusted to us as Christians? What's been entrusted to pastors like Timothy? The faith. The, the faith. That which is true about Jesus Christ. Maybe if you want to look at it from a little bit different angle for another synonym. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, it's actually a different Greek word that Paul uses, but the New American Standard, the Bible I'm preaching from, the translation, translates it this way, and for good reason, because he's really talking about the same idea. But in chapter 1, verse 11, where he's talking about himself as an example to Timothy, he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I know why the translator said entrusted there, even though it's a different Greek word, because it's capturing the same idea that he's telling Timothy. You know what, Timothy? You've been entrusted with the deposit. I was entrusted with the deposit. It's called the gospel. The faith. The gospel. There are other synonyms as well. Later on in chapter uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Guard, same idea, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure, okay, what is it, which has been entrusted to you. Well, he's basing that upon verse 13 of 2 Timothy 1. Retain the standard of sound words. That's a synonym for the faith, 
a synonym for the gospel, sound words, which you have heard from me. It's apostolic sound words that he would receive from from an apostle of Christ. So we understand what he's talking about. He's talking about that. He's talking about the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That's what we stand at attention and defend with our very being. And the reason it motivates me and the reason I'm willing to perspire over it, both literally and figuratively, is because I know that that's the only reason I have any hope. I may have not done what Paul did, but I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And therefore, I want to defend that because certainly out of love for other people, I would want them to experience that too. It's hope. It's forgiveness. It's redemption. Well, now we move on from sort of the concept to fleshing it out a little bit. If we keep reading back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, we, we, we move on a little bit where he talks about putting this into practice. Okay, you're going to guard, but there's more to guarding. There's something else involved. He says, avoiding. So you're guarding and avoiding as you're guarding. Worldly and empty chatter. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter. I don't know about you, but I have some friends that when they talk about spiritual things, sometimes I go, oh. Do you have to say it like that? That kind of, you know, that can rub somebody the wrong way. That's how some of you think about me when I preach. I know. But I don't talk like this all the time. I believe all this all the time. I'm not always in preaching mode. I have some friends, and it seems like they're always in preaching mode. And the things they say sometimes, I just go, oh. This is one of those kind of things, by the way. As he's telling Timothy what to avoid, avoiding worldly and empty chatter. Well, he's been talking about these people for six chapters, and now he just lobs a big old insult. You know what you need to avoid, Timothy? I've been telling you about these false teachers. I've even named some of them. And you know, you need to avoid, and let me just summarize it all, it's worldly and empty chatter. The word worldly probably borrowed from from Greek culture. It's anything outside the boundaries of the temple. It's out of bounds. It's not within the framework of orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. It's outside. Therefore, what do you do? You avoid it. Oh, and by the way, the real insult, I think, probably because I'm not a Greek, the first one may have been pretty insulting to them, and empty chatter. The word chatter there is translated Matthew 26, 75, for a crow, like the bird, you know, BB gun worthy. (laughs) He's lobbing an insult. You know what? You just need to, as you're standing for the truth and defending the truth, you need to avoid worldly, out there, crowing. You just need to avoid it. You just need to turn a deaf ear to it. You just need to ignore it. That's your responsibility, Timothy. Squawking. Just irritating, squawking. Somebody do something and shut that stupid bird up. So we're thinking... It's the yapping dog, right? 
He could have used that because that was a derogatory term too. It's the yapping dog that never stops yapping. Well, Timothy, as you're in defense mode, because you love Christ and you love His gospel and you know of its power and you want to be a faithful servant of Christ and you're guarding the deposit that's so valuable, you know what? You need to turn a deaf ear to all of these other teachers who want to bring something else to the table. And you know what? It's just a bunch of squawking anyway that's BB gun worthy. That's your responsibility when it comes to guarding the truth. When they come, and then keep going in verse 20, and you're also to be avoiding the opposing, the antithetical, was how you could translate that from the Greek word, arguments, the differing arguments, the arguments that are different from Paul's, of what is falsely called knowledge. Can't you just hear it? People come and they say, oh, yeah, I know the Bible says that. But I have this experience. I know the Bible says that, but you know, in my heart, I feel. You know, I know the Bible says that, but I read this book the other day. Knowledge. He says it's falsely called knowledge. What you need to hear through those words is yapping. You need to hear squawking. And you just need to turn a deaf ear to it. It's pretty strong what he's saying. If it stands in opposition to apostolic truth, if it stands in opposition to Scripture, then forget about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty strong. It's, it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong when you go back and, and read First Timothy. And, you know, on one level, when you read it, you think, I mean, was it really that bad that they're doing? Here, here are some of the things, just to summarize. There are people who are fascinated with and consumed with myths and genealogies. You know, just extra biblical revelation. Apocryphal stuff. Maybe at a different level. Not just apocryphal, but pseudopigraphal. Good word, huh? It's just, it's just considered a myth, but now somehow somebody kind of blows the dust off it and rediscovers it. And they say, oh, we found the hidden gospel of Jesus. It's always been written off as a myth and now someone is profound and they've rediscovered it and now we're going to bring it to the table. You know, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. That's in chapter 1 or in chapter 1 also. You know, it doesn't seem like that big a deal to say to Christians, yeah, we, we understand that it's Christ and He's great and everything, but you believe the Old Testament too, right? And Christians say, oh, we believe the Old Testament too. Well, you know what? There's a lot of things the Old Testament says you're not doing. We want you to be under the Old Testament law. And Christians start thinking, hmm, Maybe. Well, that's talked about in chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. Or also in chapter 4, how about where there were those who were trying to get into the church saying, if you're really godly and you're going to be a leader and you're really going to be somebody, then you shouldn't get married. It really seem like that big of a deal. Oh, and by the way, if you're really going to be godly, truly godly, you also, there's certain foods that you shouldn't eat. That's in chapter 4. Does that really seem like that big of a deal? Or how about in chapter 6, people who don't agree with Paul? <laughs> Is that really that big of a deal? Or how about in chapter 6, people who don't say that Christians should live a certain way as Christians? You live however they want to live. It's all by grace, only through faith. Or how about in chapter 6, people do ministry for money? You know, everybody's got an early living, and you know what? It's, it's okay to do that for money. 
At that level, on a certain level, I think it's not that big a deal to get out the big stick and call them yappers and say you should avoid them. I mean, couldn't he just say, you know, we should have some ecumenical dialogue and I'll learn from you and you learn from me. And Did you really have to insult them? Did you really have to say avoid them at all costs? You know why he did? Because in one way or another, every one of those kinds of things undermines the cross. If it's only by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ that we are justified, sanctified, glorified, if it's everything to do with Christ and it's all about Him, then as soon as you say, if you're really going to be godly, then you shouldn't eat certain foods at certain times of the year, then you're a false teacher because you're undermining that. If you do the marriage thing, you do the food thing, you do the you got to go backward to do the Old Testament law, gloves come off. BB gun worthy. It's my new phrase. Should have called the sermon BB gun worthy. Serious business. Guarding the sacred trust because we're talking about the faith. Think about this for a moment. If that, the cross, is the sum and substance of the faith, Paul says it is, we preach Christ crucified, nothing else. If that is the sum and substance of the faith, Christianity is really easy to understand. And it's really easy to get it right. Super easy. The faith. But it's also, on a different level, really easy to get it wrong. Because if there is such a thing as the faith, then everything else is a violation. Everything else is outside of the bounds of the faith. It's pretty serious. Easy to hit the target. Easy to not hit the target. The next time I hear someone saying, Jesus, 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 food law. Jesus, 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 marital requirement. Jesus, 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 go backward, Old Testament law. Or whatever. Is that a crow I hear? Or the neighbor's irritating dog? And what's the command? Avoid. Avoid, 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 avoid. Avoid, 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 avoid. That's what he says. I like what R. Kent Hughes, who faithfully pastored College Church in Wheaton, Illinois for years, said years ago about this. This defines the essential work of the church and its leadership today. It is not responsible to do new theology, but to guard and exposit, he borrows from 2 Timothy, the apostolic deposit. He's totally right. It's about this. Why is it about this? Because Christianity is about him. It's about the gospel. I like to borrow from the police department and their long-term motto, serve, 
and protect. Serve and protect. Serve and protect. That should really be what pastors are all about. We want to serve by giving God's word and we want to protect that valuable deposit. And that's really what we want to be as a church as well. We want to be so amazingly positive about Christ that we are willing to fight for the purity of Christ and His gospel no matter what. And it should be true of you as a, as a Christian as well. Let's move on to a second indispensable resource. And as I said, that was the first 90% of what we'll look at. Number two, a disturbing illustration. A disturbing illustration. What happens when you don't obey the biblical imperative to, 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 to guard? Turn away from. What happens when you don't obey that? Well, look at this illustration. It's so disturbing. Verse 21. Which some have professed. Some have professed. And thus gone astray from the faith. That's a pretty motivating illustration. Timothy, we're not playing games here. He uses the word that's used for an archer. I don't know what what it is with this military hunting thing today. BB gun stuff, but oh well. He he uses the word for an archer. It's missing the mark. The word that he uses, some uh, gone astray from. They aim and talk about Jesus, but you know what? It's off a bit. And by being off a bit, they've gone astray from the faith. When you add to Christ, you take away from Christ, you miss the mark, and it's not the faith anymore. It seems like Paul isn't any more of a pluralist than Jesus was. If there's one true Christ who perfectly atoned for our sins and He has all authority... Sounds like Jesus and Paul are on the same page. We're talking about the faith from what we've seen even last time. We need to see that this is dangerous. And missing the mark on the cross carries with it casualties. Going back to the children illustration in my introduction, because we believe the cars are real and powerful, we hold the little hands tightly. Because we believe as we watch the news that the internet predators are real, we watch carefully. If the threat is real, we protect in a real way. Because we love our children. We love Christ and we love His gospel and we love other people who it transforms. And so, in light of that, in light of the fact that the threat is real, this has been a whole book about the realness of the threat, we're serious about this. I would submit to you that if you're not serious about this, and if I'm not serious about this as a pastor, we're not serious about this as a church, it's because we either somehow devalue the cross or we underestimate the opposition. Either way, we show ourselves to be biblically illiterate. We don't want to do that. That's why I loved reading 1 Timothy last night in one setting because I wanted it to fuel the flames of my own heart so I could be fit and ready to even talk about this matter. 
they've gone astray. They've gone astray from the faith. That also tells me as a pastor, if he's telling Timothy this as an illustration, I can't think somehow I'm above it all. Because you know, I have a theological degree. And have you seen how many books I have in my library? You know, I've been a pastor now for a dozen years. I've got it figured out. You know, if Timothy needed this kind of warning and this kind of illustration, and Timothy was Paul's right-hand man, if you will, right there with him, doesn't matter how many degrees you have. doesn't matter how much you think you know. doesn't matter how much I think I know. doesn't matter how, how great we think we are as a church. You'd better not only guard, you'd better avoid because there are spiritual casualties. They were those people who didn't avoid. They were those people who were open. They were those who pe- people who thought they were too smart for their own good. I have friends who would fit the category. Some of my very, very, very best friends. It was all about some new twist on something. It was all about being enamored with their own intellect. Sure, raised in good churches, taught the Bible, believed the Bible, supposedly. Went to seminary. gone astray from the faith. This is all real stuff. Very sobering. In verse 20, the opposing arguments, falsely called knowledge. Let's end with this third indispensable resource given to us to help in our effort to guard the sacred trust. Number three, a divine empowerment. And some of you are looking at the verse and saying, that must be in the white spaces. Because when I look at verse 21, you, Pat, you just read it. You have a mistake in your notes. You just read all of verse 21. I mean, the only thing now is just something tacked on the end that Paul always says, grace be with you. <laughs> I think he does tack it on. And I think he always does it. And it's always intentional. And it's always on purpose. Because his whole thinking and his whole mindset is so permeated with the reality that he was dead in his trespasses and sins, an enemy of God, could do no good, deserved to go to hell, and God, through Christ, rescued him, and now he's a new creation in Christ, and it was all by grace that he was saved. Ah, and how about this? And he knows well enough to know that it's all by grace that he's sanctified or spiritually maturing. And he knows it's all by grace that he will be glorified. It's all of grace. And so he does talk like this all the time. But not just because. God's grace be with you, Timothy. And we should know full well that if we're going to be faithful for one day, with guarding the gospel, avoiding those who oppose it in any way, shape, or form, even what seems to be a little way, we should know that we won't be faithful for one single day apart from grace. Grace is what holds us. My life will be an absolute train wreck tomorrow if somehow it were possible for God to take the sustaining grace off of Pat Abendroth's life, you would read about me in the newspaper tomorrow morning, right? I believe that. 
front page, doing the unthinkable. Saved by grace, walking by grace, glorified by grace. It's all by grace. And he's even reminding that, reminding Timothy of that, even here in his closing comments. Grace be with you, Timothy. Paul wasn't somehow thinking, you know, I'm an apostle. And therefore, whoever I impact will do what I say. And by the way, apostle carries a major big stick. An apostle is someone who speaks with the authority of the one they've been sent by. When he says, Paul, an apostle to you, Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 1 or 2, whatever it is, he's saying, in effect, we should read that in effect, this is a red letter letter. It's no different than Jesus Christ writing the letter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm not belittling that, but Paul knows full well that even as an apostle, he could say, Timothy, do this. And Timothy wouldn't. Train wreck. Timothy, front page. Because remember, Paul, as an apostle, had other people that he mentored and impacted. And now he names them by name sometimes in his letters because they have gone astray from the faith. So he knows full well, even speaking with apostolic authority, Timothy, grace be with you. God is the one who must do this through you or it will not be done. And so I need to know that as a pastor. When I think to myself, God, please, just, just one more week. Of, of, of just any kind of faithfulness to your word. Maybe I should say one more hour. One, just give me one more day. Or how about for us as a church? If history repeats itself, someday this church will be upside down. Both feet up with rigor mortis. This will be a dead church. Happens every time throughout history. The church you would never go to today. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen sooner than later apart from God's grace holding it. And I think it's going to happen when we stop committing ourselves to realizing that the reason it hasn't happened already is because God's grace is holding it. It's all God's grace that holds everything together. It's always about Him. We need to remember that. It's our supernatural enabling power not only to proclaim Christ, but also to defend the truth of the gospel. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this great, great, great time in your word. And on one level, Lord, I'm thinking to myself, you, you don't need to be defended. You don't need to be guarded or protected. Your gospel doesn't need to be defended. And yet I read these words and it's absolutely what you call us to do. So we do know that you work through human means as you work through your grace. God, give us another day. And then we'll ask for another day and another day and another day. We would want to and we desire to exalt Christ and to exalt His gospel. It is our passion. It is what we want to have continually kindled by your Holy Spirit. Again, knowing that apart from that, apart from that gracious act, it won't happen. God, give us another day. Give us another week. Give us another year. 
Give us many years by your grace to exalt Christ in this place and beyond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.